Welcome to Midwretched, the home of the most heartless of the heartland. Join us, Tommy and Mick, as we share the best true crime tales the Midwest has to offer. back to Midwretched. Exciting, right? We're here for part uh, two. Yeah. Of the I'm perfecting my sexy internet podcast host voice. It's going really well. Thank you. I think it's very sexy. Thank you. See? <laughs> 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 it is getting better. Yes. And that was a great way to introduce <laughs> a new episode. So I'm going to jump right in. How do we feel about that? Fuck yes. I want to hear how this guy gets caught. Okay, good. So I want to tell you how he gets caught. First. Yes, more semen, more stuff. More stuff. <laughs> more psychics. Because yeah. you left me with psychics last time and I was mad. And I don't have more psychics. I'm sorry. What I do you know have what it's better. is a crazy ass investigation. All right, let's go. It's crazy. So Karen Sue Bindeman is the victim of the Ypsilanti Ripper that brings everything to a close. So Karen Sue Bindeman was originally from Grand Rapids, and she moved to Ypsilanti to start at Eastern Michigan. And she actually came the summer before her freshman year to do some summer sessions um, mm -hmm. because she was really excited about her career to be as a special education teacher. Oh, those are the best people in the world. Absolutely, they are. And that seemed to be like very much kind of who she was as a person, just wanting to help and make an impact and make a difference. And she was known to be like very peppy and just really excited and ready to go. She had just written to her parents that she was going to be safe and be careful out here in Ypsilanti. And it, it didn't end up going that way. And she was only 18. Like I said, she was a freshman. So really, really young. Her body was found on July 27th, 1969. The last day that she was seen was the 23rd. So four days before on a Wednesday. I'm going to talk through Karen's last day. Okay. She had lunch with friends on campus that day. Sounded like it was probably an early lunch. She was going to a wedding that weekend and she really, really wanted to buy a hairpiece for it. So she uh, walked downtown by herself. Um, she asked originally a roommate to if she wanted to come with her, but the roommate uh, had some schoolwork to do. So she said no. So Karen walked by herself to a shop in downtown Ypsilanti called Wigs by Joan, where she was planning to pick up a hairpiece that she had ordered. So she gets there and uh, well, she's almost there. And a young guy on a motorcycle is seen approaching her and offers her a ride. And uh, she's just going two blocks down to the wig shop. So she says, yes. Sorry, the cat. He's terrible. <laughs> so uh, the cool thing about this shop is that it's very small and very intimate. Again, it's called Wigs by Joan. The owner was Diana Joan Ghost. She went by Joan. So that's what we'll call her. And then 
Patricia Spalding was her stylist um, at the shop. So they were kind of a, a dream team running this cool little shop in downtown Ipsy. And Karen was the type that you would just kind of chat with for a little bit. So they kind of got to talking and Karen said to Diana, she was kind of laughing and she said, I've done two foolish things today, bought this hair piece and got onto a motorcycle with a stranger. <laughs> yeah. So mm. it's like, so Karen probably went to town knowing that this stuff was going on. But I think when this kind of stuff is going on, you like, you have this mentality of like, it'll never be me, you know? Oh yeah. Especially again, like these people are pretty young. They're still that like, uh, there's actual like a term in psychology for it that is escaping me right now. But yeah, where you feel like nothing will ever happen to you. Yeah, there's like an invincibility kind of little complex that goes on, right? Mm -hmm. That's what was going on. Joan was a little bit older. She was in her late 20s. And so she was a little bit outside of the realm of the profile. But she still was like just nervous and on edge about, you know, everything going on in town. And Karen had just gotten to Ipsy. So Joan was like, Joan and Patricia both were like, don't do it. Don't do it. Joan went so far as to offer her a ride home. So like, that's how scared that Joan was for her. Like she was like, I don't know you, right? But I'm gonna give you a ride home. Joan just like, she would say later, she just felt like something was not right about this. So she made a point to go to the window and go get a look at the guy. When he saw that she was looking at him, he put his head down. So she wasn't able to get a great look but she was able to take at least like a mental note of like basic features and the the type of motorcycle that he was driving. Again, Joan was like, just let us take you home, please. And Karen just seemed kind of like embarrassed and just kind of was like, that's silly. It'll be fine. I'm just going to go. And then so Karen left and Joan and Patricia watched. They wanted to make sure that they watched her, um, watched her go, you know, as safely as she could. For a minute there, it looked to Joan like Karen was going to turn the guy down. Eventually, she did get on his motorcycle. Um, Yeah, and Joan and Patricia watched her turn, watched the motorcycle turn down the street, kind of heading towards Ann Arbor. So that was the last time that Karen was ever seen alive. The friends... You know, like the she lived with a couple of different girls and the roommates were like, okay, by 1115, we don't know where Karen is. We need to, you know, make a report. So they called the campus police first and the campus police contacted the Ipsy police and then the RA of their dorm called Karen's parents. And then her dad, Roland, called the Ipsy police as well. So... Ipsy police know at this point they're looking for a missing petite brunette college student. So, so they have to be freaking out as soon as they, they get that totally, report. They totally are. And they are like kind of on fire at this point. Like, you know, they really, they wanted Alice Callum's case to go a certain way with like a media blackout. And, you know, they kind of had this plan that they ended up putting in place for Karen's actually. So I don't want to spoil it, but they, I think like you can imagine this like build up and then let down for how they wanted Alice's investigation to go down, but it couldn't go down. This cat is literally clawing my butt right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Your cat is such an asshole. It's worse. I mean, he's so beautiful, but he's just awful. 
And he, whenever I sit, I'm in hoping the- that he calms down, like as he gets older and more mature. I'm getting a spray bottle. This is why you, your cat needs some Ziggy energy. Needs to go the fuck away energy is what it means. All right, you see my bottle. I Most love it. I use it to humidify my plants, but occasionally it works for the cat too. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so police. They're on fire to get this right this time. And there are so many of them involved. And that is both a blessing and a detriment at the end of the day here. But they start retracing her steps and the roommates were able to give the police a photo of Karen. It was kind of grainy though. But so the roommates at least knew the wig shop that uh, she was gonna go to. So they went to wigs by Joan. Joan and Patricia were like, look, this picture is too grainy to say that this picture is the girl which I feel like is also a really smart move on their part. But they were able to describe Karen to the most minute detail down to the shoe. They were like, she's wearing tan, leather, slider sandals. She was wearing this, this, this. They had it like so detailed out. And the police asked her, why did you note so strongly what she looked like that day? And Joan said, because I knew something was wrong. Okay. I love this woman. She came in so clutch for this case. I just love that. That's so crazy that so many people were getting this, like, it's just wrong vibe. Yeah, especially at the time when, like, hitchhiking was not, you know, uncommon. And, you know, there was this kind of, like, like we talked about before, this kind of, like, weird sense of freedom or, like, devil may care kind of stuff. But if you had ever tried to take a ride with a stranger in college, I would have like just hit you until you passed out and then like taken you back. You would have. You really would have. <laughs> I'd be like, no. Yeah, same. Same. <laughs> I don't know if you could have done that. I would have been able to. You know, my students call me tiny but mighty, right? Remember the mighty part. Mighty. I do remember the mighty part. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> Yes, yes. I recall that someone has referred to you as Mighty. That's right. Thank you very much. So Joan was also like, he was riding a really flashy motorcycle. It was blue. It had a lot of chrome on it. And then I think it was Patricia's boyfriend was also into bikes. And so she thought it looked like his Honda, which unfortunately ended up being the wrong kind of bike. And that kind of sent police on a mini goose chase. But they were able to kind of oh. together. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't that bad, but the Honda got leaked to the press because there's that little reporter that keeps leaking everything. And I want to strangle that reporter. Stop being such a dick. You know, and like, I'm so glad that he wasn't able to ruin this particular moment, although something else happens later. That's he tried. Yeah, well, he didn't try, but something else got messed up. So police knew, well, okay. So police knew that a body was going to turn up. They just knew it. They, they were not thinking like, oh, this is just going to be a random missing person. You know, I think they probably had that sinking feeling to expect the worst, you know? So they asked Joan and Patricia, like, what did the guy look like? And they said, okay, he's in his early twenties. He's about six feet tall. He's real clean cut looking. Doesn't look like a hippie. He's got short, dark hair and a striped shirt. So they were able to note like what he was wearing, which again, go Joan and Patty. It killed it on this one. I love these ladies. I'm like such a fan of them, but. Yay. 
Yeah. And then Joan gave a, a really strong testimony in trial later. So uh, the, there's a chocolate shop next door. And it happened that the girl that worked the counter at the chocolate shop was a motorcycle enthusiast. And she knew exactly what kind of bike it was. So even though they had gone to school, how yeah to these girls? I know, right? Like I want to chill on this corner in Ipsy where all this awesome badass ladies are hanging out. Not that they're still there, but you never know. Whatever. They probably still run those same shops, and I could fucking. I fucking hope so. So yes, they're like it was actually a Triumph, which is like a British brand of motorcycle. I don't know, but. It was a, a tricked out Triumph with a lot of chrome on it, like really fancy. And the police were like, okay, cool. Like the Honda's already been leaked to the media. We've already chased down some records for the Honda, but you know, oh well. So here's where things get really, really lucky for police. And I love what happens next. Are you ready? I'm so ready. I'm ready for good news. Yeah, this is good news. And uh, we're gonna meet somebody else that we're gonna love. We love Joan and Patricia. And we love this guy, Larry Matthewson. Okay. Okay. So Larry Matthewson is a junior officer with the Eastern Michigan University on-campus police. So he's a, a young patrolman and he's got a hunch. He saw a young guy in a striped shirt on a motorcycle in downtown Ipsy the day that Karen went missing. All right. Yeah. So he noticed that the guy was talking to a pretty young brunette with an armful of books. It wasn't Karen, but this tells us that this killer was like casing the area that day looking for somebody. So he saw um, this guy talking to this girl and he, Larry was like, wait a minute, I know that guy. And he's like, how do I know this guy? Oh shit, we used to play intramural football together at Eastern. (laughs) Right? So, Larry's like, oh yeah. And he was a frat guy at Theta Chai. So he goes to his boss and to the county prosecutor. And he's like, I just, I know I saw him. He was wearing a striped shirt. I know I know him. What should I do? And they told him, follow that shit up, homie. So he did. Did the police tell him to follow what? The prosecutor, the county prosecutor told Larry to follow up. Okay. 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 So Larry goes to the frat house first and he's like, he describes the guy and the frat guys say, oh yeah, that sounds like John Collins. So we remember that John Collins was seen walking with Joan Shell on her street mm-hmm. the day that she died. Matthewson, Larry Matthewson is like, fantastic. Does he still live here? And the frat guys are like, no, we kicked him out for stealing our money. He lives on a little apartment on Emmett Street now. Also the street that Joan Shaw lived on. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. So Larry goes over there and he's like, I saw this great article where he's like describing what it was like to be there. And he's outside of this apartment on Emmett Street. And he looks over and he sees Joan Shaw's apartment from where he's standing. So he knew where he was, you know, and it like. That was one of those moments of research where it's like, I know how tight these spaces are just because I've been there and I know this case, but like I was imagining being Larry Matthewson and standing in that space and having that like light bulb, oh shit moment. Mm -hmm. So he approaches the apartment and a girl answers the door and she kind of mumbles like, yeah, John's in the back. He's like, hey, can I go back there? And the girl's like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. 
So, <laughs> yeah, like the way that this girl is described is so funny because it's like, yeah, and then she mumbled that we could go in the house. I'm like, wow. And like, if police shows up and you're just like, yeah, I don't care, whatever. But everything I can tell, like, these guys, these were like dick birds. Like, these guys were not like chill guys to hang out with, you know? So, so it was it the girl's house or was it the guy's house? It's an apartment built like a duplex style building. So, lots of Oh, okay. So like that college apartment. Oh, okay. Yeah. Makes me so, wonder if she hated them and she was like, yeah, get the fuck in there. Well, and here's why. they, Because they're obnoxious as hell. So, yeah. you know, Larry goes back there and uh, John Collins is back there working on a bike with a friend named Dave Lee Myers. And so this is a small community and Larry's a recent graduate of Eastern. He's a, you know, a patrolman now. So Dave knows Larry and he's like, oh, hey, Larry, what's up? Like, and they start kind of trading pleasantries and stuff. And so Larry says that he's here to just kind of, you know, follow up on Karen Bynuman and have you seen her? And he pulls out a picture of Karen and they look at it for a long time. And it's noted in the reports that they looked at it for a very long time. And what's John Collins doing like during all of this? Because you said he was there working on the bike. Yeah, he's looking at the pictures with Dave. So they're all together. Uh huh. And after a while, they're like, yeah, we never saw her. And Collins notes, she probably just went off somewhere. So it's interesting that he kind of right away offers like an excuse of where she would be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not suspicious at all, right? No, not suspicious at all. You've just, you know, been seen around the area of two of the murders. Exactly. So then Arnie Davis, who's another friend of theirs, walks up and he like, at this point, John Collins is looking real grumpy. So... Arnie Davis walks up and he's got a new license plate for one of Collins's vehicles. And he gives Collins a license plate and Collins just kind of like grunts or whatever. And there's this awkward silence. So Larry Matthewson, I love how intelligent this moment was because I feel like he sensed the arrogance from Collins. Yeah. So, and the arrogance and the anger. So Matthewson, Larry Matthewson goes, Hey, I feel like I saw you on Ballard street talking to a really cute girl. And this, oh, I love that. I love that. Good, good, good. So, this gets Collins to immediately soften, and he starts talking about, like, oh, you know, this girl, her name was Lorraine, and we were just kind of talking, you know, yada, yada, yada. So, while Collins is talking, Larry starts to uh, write down the plate numbers and, and everything, and then Collins asks him what he's writing down. And he said, oh, I just have to follow up on all these motorcycles. And this is when Collins gets mad. And he tells Larry, the quote is, well, you can fuck off and go play policeman somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yes. You touch a nerve there? A little bit. So we got him to soften. And then he gets him angry again with that little detail. But I feel like that's just a fun play. Like is. that is just an asshole poke the bear. Yes. And I and just, I love, it. I love Larry Matthewson. And on the way out, he sees a blue chromed out triumph. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's the bike that was seen with Karen Bynuman. He also notes that the edges of the license plates are bent up that make it hard to read from behind. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that also looks really suspicious like why would you have and it looked deliberate like it looked like they were folded up like corners of a like if you're folding a note or something you know not like well, maybe it, he was just doing origami with his license plate you don't know 
Maybe. I guess I shouldn't judge. Yeah, we should. We really shouldn't judge this guy. That's the lesson today, guys. Don't judge. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't judge people. That's the point of our entire podcast. Don't judge people for their hobbies. Some people's hobby, I mean, some people collect stamps. Some people do origami with their license plates. Yeah, right. I mean, I I like plants. That's not weird. Are there bodies in them? Not usually. <laughs> not ever. <laughs> All right, any hoozles, enough about my. <laughs> so, Larry Mathewson, before he pissed Jay uh, Collins off, he was able to get the full name of the girl that he had seen Collins with, and her name was Lorraine Kellogg. So, uh, Larry is able to track down Lorraine Kellogg and says, um, Yeah, we chatted, we used to date. But he liked his bikes more than he liked me. So I ended the relationship. It wasn't angry. It was just like he seemed like he wasn't really that into me. Um, and Matthewson is like, okay, do you remember about what time that was? And she says, yeah, I was definitely home by 1230. And Matthewson is like, how sure are you about that? And she was adamant because she always made it home in time to watch her favorite soap opera. So she was able to watch the whole episode, which means she knew exactly what time she was there. And soap opera people be on that. They really do be. So Collins had told Matthewson that he was with Lorraine for like an unspecified amount of time, but he said it was a while. But because Lorraine said that she was definitely at home on time for her soap, that left Collins at this point without an alibi for when the time at which Karen was last seen. So Larry, a smart cookie again, says, hey, do you by any chance know of any other girls that John has dated? And Lorraine gives the name of Linda Campbell. So Matthewson, and he's really just going for it. He goes and finds Linda and she says kind of the same thing, like we dated, but you know, he's into his cars and his bikes and he just seemed preoccupied and, you know, kind of disinterested and everything. But she offhand, completely without any prompting whatsoever, said, yeah, and it pissed me off once when he came to my job at the Camelot Room, which was the restaurant at the hotel that the psychic Peter Herkos was staying at. Oh. Yeah. So John Collins showed up at the restaurant and was like, I just want to hear what this guy has to say and asked for a table that, you know, backed to the booth that Herkos was sitting at for lunch. He wanted to listen in. He did. Yep, he did. And so when they were talking about it later, Linda and John, um, she noted to Larry that John was like, oh, this guy's full of shit. He would know. Yeah, totally. <laughs> he's obvious. <laughs> Sorry, spoilers. Yeah, he's the expert here. So yeah. Matthewson, again, in his last act of genius for this moment, was like, have you ever had a picture with John? And Linda was like, well, yeah, you know, we were dating last Christmas, so here's a picture. And so he gives, uh, or she gives him a picture of John Collins standing next to a Christmas tree. It's kind of fuzzy and it's from a distance, but... I mean, you, if you can see the picture, you can see like who the guy is, but it's also like a sixties photograph. So it's not great, but I was trying to see if I could find it on Google and I can't, but that's okay. So I have so many files. Oh my God. 
I think my computer is like ready to spontaneously combust in the name of this case. <laughs> like, this is like <laughs> what I've been doing other than my job for the last week. <laughs> and it's like, I have known about this case for my entire life, but mm. I've learned so many things I didn't know before. So that's exciting. It really is exciting. And like Larry Matthewson is one of the things I didn't really know before. Like his role was so pivotal in kind of creating this, like it ends up being a circumstantial case against Collins. Cause it's a lot of like, well, he was here, he was there kind of stuff, but his work put together that timeline. Yeah. And I mean, circumstantial evidence is still evidence, It is right? Yeah, yeah totally. And he seemed, he was a young guy too, right? Yeah, he was like 22, 23 years old. Like he's a fresh college grad, but sharp, you know, thinking. Yeah. Using his connections really well. So, you know, we love Larry Matthewson. Yay. You go, Larry. So he takes that picture and he goes to Wigs by Joan and asks Joan and Patricia, is this the guy that you saw on the bike? Joan and Patricia, they don't fuck around with the fuzzy picture. They didn't fuck around with yeah. it before and they're not fucking around with it now. And they said, we're not sure. It's a young guy with dark hair that's clean cut. But that's, they were not willing to commit that that was the right guy. Later on though, when they do a physical lineup, it's unequivocal. Yeah. Get there. But Larry is like, well, let's take it over to the chocolate shop and see. So um, I love this anecdote because Larry goes back to the chocolate shop where the girl, you know, ID'd the bike. And it's a different person working the counter. And he's like, oh, where was the girl working the counter before? And uh, she was on lunch. So he goes to the back where she's eating a sandwich. And he's like, hey, you know, is this picture match the guy? And uh, the account of this says she dropped her sandwich and said, shit, that's him. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Yep. So this starts to establish like a really, really strong timeline and people that can put him with Karen Vineman on the day that she went missing. Mm-hmm. Remember though, at this point, we don't have her body. All we have is a missing girl. I was going to say like, that's, uh, it makes me wonder if she's still alive. Maybe she's still alive. Is she still alive? No. Damn it. Unfortunately. So, um, surveillance begins on John Collins. He, um, after this questioning from Matthewson, he actually skipped town for the weekend, went back to go see his mom in center line. He's seen in center line by the police out there washing his car. Of course. Yeah. Yep. As you do. Uh, he does come back to Ipsy though. So then meanwhile, this is like in my notes, (laughs) this meanwhile actually says even more meanwhile, because the last one was a meanwhile. Wait, can I, how far is center line from Ipsy? So Centerline is like surrounded by Warren. So it would be like 40 minutes, I would say. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's just Metro Detroit, just the north north side of the city. So Yeah. So yeah, he left, but he comes back. It's all really, you know, really close. Um even more meanwhile, back in Ipsy or Ann Arbor Township technically. A professor and his wife go out to check their mail and they find the nude body of a young woman on Riverside Drive in Ann Arbor Township. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's Karen Bynuman. Gonna give some details about the scene on this one because it again exemplifies an increase in brutality in the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, was nude as the other victims were. She had been beaten, stabbed, and strangled as the others had been. This time around, 
the forensics were uh, without question said any single one of those could have been the cause of death. They officially ruled that it was a strangulation, but it was kind of like, you know, just, just pick your, pick your cause of death. Yeah. She had also been tortured with a caustic or corrosive substance that she was forced to drink. Um, oh my God. And it had also been used to wound her breasts and genitals. It was, it was a really bad scene. Um, some one forensics report I read said that there was so little breast tissue left that it was almost like it wasn't there. Oh my God. Yeah. Whatever happened in this particular scene, it was really brutal. It was really brutal. She, there was also evidence that she had been raped and her panties were stuffed inside her vagina. So that is a signature that kind of comes back the insertion of, of some kind of foreign object. Oh, yeah. What they had this time that was interesting and would come in clutch later was that there were 509 small hair clippings on her and especially attached to the panties that were not hers. Okay. The hair okay. Interesting. Yeah. The hairs were blonde and they were clipped. So not pulled out it, like a, like a haircut, right? Yeah. So they know it's Karen. They get her ID'd right away, but the police are insistent this time on the media blackout happening mm -hmm. because Sheriff Doug Harvey, who we, we like, we like in general, oof, did um, he fuck it up? He didn't fuck it up, but oh, this gets him lambasted in the media though. So originally he just wants this done. Doug Harvey just wants to get this case solved. He originally wanted to leave her body out there because they figured that he would be back and they wanted to catch him in the act of coming back because we know he likes to move bodies. There was some speculation amongst investigators and forensics that he may like to come back for sexual reasons. So he'd be there for a while, which is kind of how they, how one person theorized that the uh, wad of tissue at Dawn's scene was there that it may have been like an after the fact kind of situation. Yeah. Um, so they thought he would but be. But she was right there, it sounds like. Just like right there in public. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you go out and check your mail and you find a body. Like it's right there. Ooh. Yeah. But we know that this guy is, he's getting more and more ballsy. So it felt plausible that he would come back and they really wanted to leave her body out there. And the county prosecutor was like, you can't fucking do that. It's not ethical. Correct. Correct. You can't traumatize a community on a hunch. No. And you can't tell her family, yeah, we found her, but we left her there for a little while. You just can't do that. You can't. No. What you can do is you can march yourself to J.C. Penney's and pick up a mannequin, which is exactly what Doug Harvey did. I'm still questioning this, but I like it more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's better. So, you know, they got Karen's body out and they planted a mannequin from JC Penney's and they found one. They actually like, it sounded like they worked with store clerks to find one that was like about her size and had dark hair and everything. And they- How does that conversation go at JC Penney's? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine being like the guy that's like- Hi, I need a mannequin to set up at a crime scene. Um, I need it to be about five foot four brunette. That's exactly what they did. 
I can't. I know. Oh and they, like, they put it out there and somebody was said that it didn't look real enough. So they kind of strategically like put grass and stuff like over parts that looked extra mannequin-y. And <laughs> this is fucking cartoonish. I know. I know. Wait until what happens next. I, the Roadrunner comes by? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> so the Roadrunner comes by. It, no. So, um, <laughs> so they set up a stakeout. And they're like, yeah. you know, we're going to we set the trap. We're going to wait and see it. Now, let me paint the particular scene of Riverside Drive in Ann Arbor. Riverside Drive in Ann Arbor is the one scene in this entire scenario that butts up against water and it butts up yeah. against um, the Huron River, which is gorgeous. But, the psychic was right. Yeah, I know. The psychic is always right. There's always water. It's <laughs> Michigan. There might be water. The Where the Huron River is at that point in town, it's like kind of marshy and then the river. So it's summer. You're next to a marsh and a river. It's raining. There's 800,000 billion mosquitoes out. So these officers are stationed out at the scene waiting. They see a jogger. They can't get an idea on them, but they see a jogger. But they are so distracted by the mosquitoes that the jogger sees them first and runs away. Shut the f- Oh, my fucking God. Yep. Yep. So this got them fucking lambasted in the media. I mean, media got a hold of that and they thought it was the most laughable stuff in the world. It is! I know. They called them the Keystone Cops and they were just like going off about this situation. But I am like, obviously it, it was not good and they should have been prepared. But I'm also imagining like your dog, Harvey, you've got such a tight window of time that you could pull this off. You're not thinking about the climate, you know, like you just got to get this done. So I don't, I don't, uh, I'm having hard, I'm having a hard time having empathy for them. Yeah. Cause it's just such a cartoonish ass. It's just like, I'm like dying. Cause it was like, you're so close. You're I know. So I know. Close. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, oh my God, like, and just. This idea of like a Michigan night with all these mosquitoes. Like and you're saying like, oh, you don't think about the climate. That is literally every night between May and October. That's true. That's true. That's true. I'm just thinking like the heat of the moment was like, we got to just get this done. But you should have been able to come <sighs> to like truck through it, you know? So Doug Harvey is pissed. Everybody is upset. But they would get lucky again. Here's how. You ready? Okay, let's get lucky. Hey, yo. <laughs> so, Tuesday, July 29th, State Police Corporal David Like comes home from vacation with his wife, Sandra, and their sons. They had gone on vacation for two weeks in Wisconsin, which, hello, we just did that. Right. Not two weeks, but but so they left their house and their doggy a german shepherd in the care of their nephew guess who their nephew was was it collins it was john norman collins <gasps> yep. if he does anything to the dog i'm gonna fucking kill him <laughs> okay i'll tell you now so that you don't freak out the dogs okay okay good 
Okay. Good job taking care of the dog. So good job. Good job, job Norman. You did one thing right in this life. You did one thing right. So, (laughs) oh, he's the worst. I've been listening to this one interview from him all day. Like I keep. Oh, yeah. I have such a hard time listening to serial killer interviews. Yeah. Like I just, I feel like I want to gag the entire time. I know. I was like, you know exactly what they did, you know? And in this case, and this again, like I keep coming back to like, why hasn't there been more attention on this Mm -hmm. in general? And it's like, it's so brutal. It was so ruthless. It had all this classic escalation. It's like a case study in serial killer progression. Right? It totally is. And that just irks me that that it hasn't been better prosecuted, which we'll talk about, but also that Mm -hmm. it just hasn't been talked about. And I recognize that there's some complexity to it. Mm-hmm. And without great forensics, it's hard to talk about it. But I feel like people forget that the forensics were as good as they were going to get in 1969. Well, and in 1969, because I'm trying to think when they actually coined the term serial killer. I don't think it was until later. Yeah. So he was really one of the earlier of like the modern day serial killers. Like not the Albert Fishes, not like the the angels of death, the nurse serial killers, but of like what we truly think of as the modern day serial killers. Although I think there are some reasons. And I think the frustrating way in which this went down kind of from a prosecution perspective might be part of it too. Okay. So tell me more. Yes, I will tell you more. So David like uh, goes downstairs in his basement and oh, actually his wife did first. Sandra goes downstairs in the basement and Sandra is, she's a very tidy person. She runs a real tight ship in that house. Mm-hmm. I love that this detail was like in the papers. Like she was like adamant that her house was like clean and tidy. She knew that she had cleaned the basement before they left because mm-hmm. he had cut her three sons hair down there prior to vacation. Oh, yep. So she had mopped and waxed the floor before she went because of the haircuts. So when she got home and found a bunch of splotches of black paint on her floor, she knew they weren't there when they left. Mm. She also noticed that a giant box of detergent was gone, like laundry detergent. And so she went up, up back upstairs and asked David if he had been painting down there. And he said, no, of course not. So he comes down too. And he also notices that the can of black spray paint that they had had down there was also gone. So, you know, David like has been on a two week vacation. He goes back to work, you know, the next day and his boss pulls him aside and says, you have to know that your nephew is a suspect in the Ypsilanti Ripper case. Oh, yeah. And David like, <laughs> I love this guy. So honest. He doesn't flinch for a second to think I got a cover for my family. He says, fuck yeah. He's like, well, I found something kind of weird in my house. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, he, he floats that out, you know, and, um, and they're like, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, we'll get there for sure and everything. So it's eaten at him. It's eaten at him. And so he meets up with his friend, Stu Lucky, who's also a, a police officer, a state patrolman. And he says, I just need to talk about it. So they go out for a drink at this kind of cop bar in Ypsilanti and they get like a booth in the back. And 
David like is like, look, we left on vacation. We came back and there's this weird stuff or the black spray paint. And when I asked, and so he had also called John and asked about it. And John got real defensive and was like, I don't mm-hmm. know what you're talking about. So it just wasn't sitting right with David like, and do lucky says, well, what's under it. And David like is like, I don't know. So uh, they go back to the house and start chipping away at it. In looking around, they did find what was verified to be blood in the basement. Mm -hmm. They also found that that blood type matched Karen's type, type A blood. And there was damage to the pipes. And wire that was missing from the basement matched the wire that was on Karen's throat, which caused them to say that this time he had taken her to... David Lake's house and hung her up in the basement. Uh, yeah. Which would also feel like kind of a new level to the MO in this case, which just, yeah. it just grows a little bit in its brutality. Right. Mm-hmm. Every, every murder feels like another step of grossness. Exactly. It totally does. They also were able to find the hair clippings that Sandra had missed when she was cleaning. They found some under the dryer and those hair clippings were analyzed and they were found to be a match for the hair clippings that were found in Karen's body. So at this point, we have a really good case against John Norman Collins. Yes. Yes. So I needed a fidget. I'm sorry. Am I stressing you out? No, I just, I needed to fidget. <laughs> I needed to stim. I mean, <laughs> a little bit. This case is stressful. Uh, yeah. Uh, another thing that comes up to kind of corroborate it is that um, a neighbor had also seen, or not a neighbor, one of Collins's roommates, Arnie Davis, who we, who we saw back at the, um, at the apartment, observed Collins carrying a laundry box we know that Sandra Lake was missing a box of detergent. Mm-hmm. We saw John carrying a laundry box with women's clothing and jewelry out of the apartment into, into his car. So the assumption there is that that was his box of trophies. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, yeah. Wait, out of her apartment? Out of John's apartment. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So That's a lot of trophies. It is, isn't it? But he yeah. killed This is enough to hand down a warrant for the arrest of John Norman Collins for Karen Sue Bynum's murder. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah, it is. So Get it, Ipsy Police. I know, right? So, YPD. And the state troopers and Ann Arbor Police. I mean, this was like a complete cross-departmental effort. That's it- what is interesting, is that it actually seems like and this is one of those rare cases where police departments communicate and work together. Yeah, they were really, really cooperative. And the sheriff's office, obviously, because Doug Harvey. What I thought was really interesting about this, and it's just a sidebar detail, but they actually at one point had tried to call in the FBI for some extra help. But because the police, all the different departments have been doing such a good job, <laughs> it was like... It's not actually a federal issue here. You guys are doing a good job. So we can't, we're not actually legally authorized to come out and help you unless there's like a federal jurisdictional issue that's been broken. <laughs> <laughs> they were doing 
doing too good of a job to get some federal help, which like blows my mind. Sorry, you don't need BD Wong. You're doing fine on your own. Yeah, like you guys are just killing it. Like the bug and the mosquito situation aside, <laughs> like you talk about your heroes, you talk about Larry Matthewson. Like mm -hmm. this goes from a hunch to we have this guy in like, yeah. I mean, killing it. And then David Like too for like, like, like for not, you know, kind of backing off of the situation. He was like, yeah, yeah. It's weird. It's bothering me. Now, John was his uh, wife's nephew. So John's wife, Sandra, is sisters to John's mom, Loretta. But still, it's still your nephew. Yeah. I guess they were actually really close. So it still would have been really difficult. Where are John's parents? Uh, I'm going to get there. This okay. Is a like, there's a lot here. Yeah. So John Norman Collins is brought in for arraignment. At this point, it does become national news. This is going to blow your mind. The police department in Monterey County, California, calls Washtenaw County detectives and say, we have a murder that we think is your guy. Shut up. Seriously? Yep. 17-year-old Roxy Ann Phillips was seen with John Norman Collins and his roommate, Andrew Manuel, they had traveled to California, having rented a trailer with a stolen check and some fake IDs. So they basically just took like this cross country road trip at some point. And um, this girl, Roxy Ann Phillips, ends up meeting them and tells her friends, oh, I am. I met this really cool guy, he's John, he's a student at Eastern Michigan University, he wants to be a teacher. It all lines up, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, it turns out that Roxy Ann Phillips, her body is found in a ravine with a belt from her own dress wrapped around her neck and strangled and beat. Oh my God and one earring was missing. Wow. So without getting into like every single detail, California actually had a better case against Collins than Michigan. Did. Okay. Yeah. So Michigan is moving forward with their case. And as you know, the trial kind of begins and gets started, there is a formal indictment brought against Collins in California. The problem here right now is that there's only enough evidence to link Collins right now in this space and time in 1969 to Karen Sue Bynum. The other victims, Mary, Joan, Marilyn, Dawn, Alice, we don't have that connection yet. Mm -hmm. So he is only charged with first degree murder in Karen's case. Okay. Yeah. So, and it stays that way. Uh, really? Yes. Uh, so you know, the, the case begins and basically everyone that I've already described kind of comes through and gives their testimonies. Um, we find out that the blood that was found in David Lake's basement matched Karen's blood type, like I said before, and that, you know, Joan Ghosh, the, the woman from the wig shop came in and, you know, said everything that she knew, witness after witness after witness, even the roommate came in and talked about the box uh, full of, you know, girl stuff and purses and earrings and everything. 
Eventually, of course, John Collins is found guilty. Fuck yeah, he is. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. So let's take a minute to celebrate that before we get really upset again. Yay! So John Collins, you know, he is found guilty. He's sentenced to life in prison in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. Yay. Yay. Don't take this away from me. I must take this away from you. Well, it bothers me. Maybe it won't bother you, but I think it's going to bother you. Okay. It bothers me that California was like, he's already got a life sentence in Michigan. We're going to drop the extradition. God damn it. I kind of. Yeah. You see both sides of it, right? It's like, okay, he yeah. got a life sentence. It's not going to get any worse. But then again, Roxy doesn't get her case's day in court. Exactly. Like, I, I can completely understand the court's point of view of essentially saying, like, would it be worth the money to try him again? And, like, the state's time and all of that effort when he's already having life in prison, but at the same time does the family get justice exactly and this guy has cost michigan at this point a million 1969 dollars that's like a lot in 2020 dollars i also feel bad about all the the detectives and officers in this case who by all accounts were doing a great job but yeah were hung out to dry so much in the media that even after collins was convicted people were like this case has cost us a million dollars in Michigan and that's too much. And I'm just like, yeah, but he killed a lot of girls. That's the price. A million dollars is too much for seven women's lives. Yeah. Fuck you, Michigan public. I mean, yeah. At this point, and John Norman Collins, he remains in prison to this day. He is 70, I want to say 72, I think. And for what it's worth, he aged terribly. Yeah, he did. So this is one of those things where like, I don't want to romanticize serial killers because I get so fucking tired of how we do that in the media. But yeah. here's why John Norman Collins got away with everything that he did. Homeboy was hot. Okay. <laughs> there's no way around it. I mean, people like police thought he's got to be clergy. He's got to be police. He wasn't what he was, was extremely handsome and super clean cut looking. Like you would see him and you would think he's a choir boy, honestly. Yeah. I'm looking at photos of him right now. And when he is dressed up, when he is like suited up, he is pretty handsome. I can see him being a charmer, but when they dress him down, they take away the suits. They take away the clean cut haircut. They take away. It looks like his sense of control over the situation. If you know kind of like how that emanates in body language, it just immediately falls apart. It totally does. And that is kind of what we know about him as a person. So I want to talk about a little bit of what links him circumstantially to the other cases. And then that's going to take us home, I think. John Collins was only formally charged with Karen Sue Bynuman, other than the case in California that they eventually decided not to extradite him for. Mm-hmm. DNA has recently linked him to Alice Callum. Okay, good. Yes. He has links to almost every other victim in one way or another. Mm-hmm. For Mary Flazar, that first victim, they worked in the same building. 
on campus. Yeah. So the thought is that perhaps he observed her at work and uh, she was the first victim. So potentially he kind of cased her a while before he got up his nerve. Mm-hmm. They also found a similar necklace to hers in his possession. Okay. So circumstantial, but there's some link there. Um, when in this like line of victims was the California girl? So Roxy, uh, her time of death was June 30. So before Karen Sue Bynuman. So she was the penultimate. Wow. Wow. Okay. A really tight timeline. Now, interestingly, here's what links John Collins with Joan Shell. This just gets me to no end because we have some of this theory beforehand that maybe there was two perps. I don't personally think so, but I think that John Collins's friends made his life a little bit easier for him in some ways. Yeah. When Joan Shell was picked up by the three guys in that black and red car, Arnie Davis, John Collins's roommate, was in that vehicle. Okay. So basically what he said was that the girl entered the car um, and then Collins, we're not sure if he was in the car or not, but eventually Joan Shell was in John's company and John asked her for a date and she said no. And that would be potentially why what happened to her happened. Okay. If there has to be a why, because I'm wondering if with this guy, if there even has to be a why. Exactly. I don't know if, if, there, if we'll ever know that it's a why. Yeah. Um, I don't yeah. think because to this day he vehemently denies all of it. Oh, of course. They always do. So John Collins was actually also linked with Alice Callum, who he had also asked for some kind of sexual relationship with. And when she was found, there was a boot print near her body that matched Collins' boots pretty well. Mm -hmm. And there was a coat in his car that he had. It was his jacket that had blood on it that matched her blood type. Now, of course, it's just blood type. So yeah. You know, we can't do a whole lot with that. For Roxy Phillips in California, this is my, this is one that just gets me like to no end. So the links to Roxy Phillips in California are are pretty tight. I met a guy named John from Eastern Michigan University. I mean, come on. Her body was found near a patch of poison oak. Mm -hmm. And John Collins was treated that week for poison oak. Okay, come on. I know. But it's everything is circumstantial. How many Johns from Eastern Michigan University are in California at that time? I know. I'm actually shocked that he didn't lie about his name or anything. I mean, he did have a stolen ID, and that's how he got the, um, how he rented the vehicle, the trailer that he used. But he didn't use a fake name with the girls. Now, the case in California was actually the strongest case forensically. They had literal pubes from John Collins on Roxy Andrews. I'm, again, I get why they didn't want to prosecute, but I don't know. I guess it gets to the core of like, why, like, what is the purpose of prosecuting? Exactly. Exactly. Why do we do this? Why is it, important? is it for punishment or is it for justice? You know? Yeah, totally. I think it's a really 
interesting and valuable question. Like we have to be thinking about that culturally, especially in a situation like this, because it's like you hear like, okay, yeah, he did. You know, he is serving a life sentence. We know that he's serving in um, a very tough prison that jail in Marquette has a reputation for being a very scary place to be. But I still just keep coming back to like Roxy's family never got that moment in court. Yeah. Yeah. And if he's still denying it, then I mean, like we saw with Erica Baker, like families still hold on to that hope of like, you know, what is it? What happened? There's so many questions. Yeah, there really is. So um, there wasn't much to find circumstantially to link him with the others, especially the younger girls. But there was enough to link him at least circumstantially with Mary and with Joan and more than circumstantially with Roxy. I think this question of did he do it Mm -hmm. for everybody is not in my mind a question. I mean, you know, he did it for sure. But it, would it stand up in a court of law today? Absolutely not. Would Karen Sue Bynum's course with the evidence that we have stand up in court right now? No. Yeah. I mean, if they had that, if they had the blood and matched it via DNA, of course it would. But just hair is just the hair clippings. You know, it's yeah. circumstantial. So, so that's John Collins. He is still serving a sentence. Like I said, his life was interesting prior to all this happening. You asked about his backdrop, his parents. So his mom, while they were in court, she um, shouted out a couple of times. Her name is Loretta Collins. She and John Collins's father were Canadian. And Mm -hmm. John was born in Windsor. And... John's biological father was, by all accounts, not a good guy. So she left him and moved to Detroit when John was little. He's got two older siblings. So she moved to Detroit as a single mom. She was waiting tables, all that. Um, and then she remarried. The second husband was an asshole. Uh, and then she divorced that guy and then had a third husband, also an asshole. So there is a track record of a not so great home life going on here. It sounds like Loretta did the best that she could. Mm-hmm. And John Norman Collins was very, very close to his mom, but his mom could never like own up to what he did. Oh, okay. She so could, she was in denial. She couldn't cope with it. She was in denial. He has only been able to give one real interview with the press, which he did for a Detroit talk show in 1988. And he denied everything. When they brought up his mom, he broke down in tears. Wow. So you watch it and he's like, he stays the course. He's like, I didn't do it. And he can trot out like every, here's why I didn't do it. Here's what they said I did. I was, you know, blah, 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 blah. But when they bring up his mom, he melts. So there's a little bit of a humanity in there. Not enough. He's just a mama's boy. Yeah. Yeah, not enough. So uh, interestingly, while he's in jail, he just kind of has like, um, for a while, I know he was in isolation. In 1980, he changes his name to his biological father's last name of Chapman. Interesting. Yes. So his name is legally John Norman Chapman. Okay. He did this for a very specific reason. He was able to prove Canadian backdrop, obviously, and he holds dual citizenship. Under Canadian law, 
with the same sentence, he would be eligible for parole after serving nine years in Canada. Oh, <gasps> no. So he tried vehemently to get moved to a Canadian prison. Thank goodness the federal court was like, no, 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 no. I was going to say, like, on what grounds? Because maybe he has dual citizenship, but all of his crimes were committed in Michigan or California. Exactly. And that's why. So um, that's precisely why it just wasn't going to work. At one point, like, so he broke his media silence in 88, gave an interview for a local talk show. And I thought it was fascinating. So uh, it's all on YouTube if people want to watch it. I thought it was really, really interesting to watch just his affect. And like, just kind of the way that he kind of was still holding on to his like very specific interests. And also you could see the calculation and the detail and what his, um, what the legal team on both sides would say. So this guy had a hot temper. So he would be Mm -hmm. chill, chill, chill. And then you say the wrong thing and he's up to the moon in anger. So yep. Really interesting to kind of see that study, 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 and then they mention his mom, and he's not anger, but you see that like real quick shift in emotion. I thought it was really interesting. Sounds like he has like no regulation whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, he's either staying the course or he's completely off the deep end. So his life in prison has been like fairly um, standard, but he was transferred at one point to Ionia, which is a bit more of a relaxed facility, in, like mid state. But uh, he was all about breaking the rules down there. So they moved him back to Marquette. And Marquette, like in Michigan, (laughs) that's where you put the worst of the worst ones. So yeah, that's kind of what happened there. So he continues to serve out that life sentence and um, maintains his innocence to this day. Good for him. He can keep maintaining it. He's going to stay in prison. Yep. There you have it. That's John Norman Collins, the Ypsilanti Ripper. Yay. 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 Yay! Oh, no yays here. That's terrible. <laughs> I learned a lot. I Even I learned things I didn't know before. So, and again, I've been like obsessed with this case for years and years and years. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I never knew how he got caught or any of that. It was just so much luck. I mean, they got, you know, they did a great job, but it was also like everything happened at the right time, you know? Yeah. Like those girls were paying enough attention. That one cop was right in the right place. Yeah. And I think it's a small detail, but it's one that I keep coming back to. The fact that um, Joan Ghosh from the wig shop was so adamant that she wouldn't ID via pictures, but only by a physical person. She ID'd him in a lineup. Mm-hmm. I think that makes her sound amazing in court because it's like, I'm not going to say it until I know it. And once she knew yeah. it, didn't budge. And that... Yeah. I th- so smart on her part because I think you see a lot of cases, especially historically, where somebody IDs off a photo and that ends up being really flimsy later on. Oh yeah. Photo lineups are notoriously inaccurate. Like the research on them basically shows that photo lineups are no better than chance pick. Exactly. And somehow Joan Ghosh knew that ahead of her time. Every instinct that she had was spot on. I mean, there were like a lot of clutch players in this case, but I think she and Larry Mathewson are just like to be celebrated. They were amazing. Amazing. And shout out to the JC Penny mannequin. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, on that note, thank you for listening to Midwretched. Thank you. Follow us on the socials. Yes, please find us on Instagram at Midwretched and like us on Facebook. And if you are so inclined, email us at midwretched at gmail.com. Remember to be nice. We need it. Be nice. That's our outro.